Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. It is the season for road trips, a seasonal summer, of course, but that means more people on the beaches for sure, more people on the roads and more activity in general. I am Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched and the longest running program on Carolina business policy and public affairs seen each week across North and South Carolina. This week, we will unpack what it means to be back in summer and back in the activity of it all. And later on the program, we welcome back South Carolina's Secretary of Transportation. The Honorable Christy Hall joins us again. Stay with us. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Laura Cantrell of the Coastal Conservation League, Dr. Patton McDowell, from PMA Consulting, and special guest, Christy Hall, Secretary of the South Carolina Department of Transportation. Well, happy summer, Laura. Welcome to the program, Pat, and good to see you both, and thank you for taking time to join us. Laura, I'll start with you. This is a, a, a fun question, but it does pose an issue, and that is, Gosh, people have, it seems like people have been let out of prison. We are in the summer season. There is a bit of a bums rush now down to the beaches. Our beaches are full, our, our, our uh, accommodations, our hotels are full, our roads are full. Does that create an even more exacerbated issue around environmental challenges? Um, well, thank you, Chris. And first of all, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to join you. It's good to see you again. I'm, I'm glad to, to be here. And, you know, you ask a great question. You're absolutely right. It, uh, everyone is excited to be, um, you know, let out of their homes and enjoying nature and, and doing the things that they love. And in the summer, what they love is to come to our coast. And that, you know, that's, uh, in many ways, that's a great thing because, our economy depends on tourism. That is our that's our major industry, and we love the coastal areas too. And uh, and yet, you're right. It does create challenges. And I think in one thing in particular, I'd like to use as an example of a challenge because it's an exciting announcement that we had here in Charleston just this week. I think it's relevant to your question. Um, we had an uh, an announcement from the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. Mm -hmm and Cornell Ornithology Lab. Um, in 2019, our state biologists discovered that half of the entire world's population of wimbrels, which is a migratory bird, uh, stop over at uh, DeVoe Bank, which is a very small um, uh, 
uh, spit of sand, a little island just south of, of Charleston. And they stopped to roost on their way to the Arctic. These are long haul migratory birds. They go from the bottom of South America to the top of the Arctic and back every year. And scientists have long known that the populations of these birds were declining for lots of reasons. And the estimates are that there are now about 40,000 of these birds. And with this discovery, we now know that 20,000 of these birds are stopping at this little place right in our backyard. And what's you know so remarkable, I mean, I could go on and on and I promise I won't. <laughs> they, you know, they go from South America, they make one pit stop. So 20,000 of these birds stopping for about a month to rest, to, to, to fatten up and get ready for their journey because once they leave, they don't stop until they get to their destination. They fly for days. Mm -hmm. So they're incredible creatures. And um, I think that one thing that this discovery shows, which gets back to your question about the pressure of more people at the coast, is just how valuable these places are for, for, the, for the birds and, and other kind of wildlife. And as the coast of the Carolinas, South Carolina and North Carolina, you know, continues to grow and um, population growth and the pressure of development that comes from that and also climate change and impacts like sea level rise and more storms. It's making it even more difficult to protect places like, like DeVoe for, um, uh, and it makes it even more important and, you know, obviously more difficult. That doesn't, and I know that won't surprise insiders like yourself, Laura, but does it give you more leverage within, again, I don't want to go down that road too much while it's a very exciting announcement, does it give you some leverage within the General Assembly to maybe be more protective of coastal regions? Uh, I mean, yes, I hope so. And I think that it's up, it's up to, to people like us, like my organization and, and lots of other people who are advocates and stewards for these special natural places to make the case about why they're so important. And obviously they're not just important for the birds, which in and of itself is important, but you know, we're all part of this ecosystem and keeping these natural places natural and finding the right balance of those places and places where people can go and play and enjoy, you know, that, that, that's the trick, mm -hmm. that's the secret sauce. You know, Pat, let's stay with this idea of, of NGOs and nonprofits during the time. And of course, uh, Laura with Conserv uh, Coastal Conservation League talks about one particular aspect of this. But when we look at the seasonal seasonability or seasonality, rather, I'm sorry, of nonprofits, 501c3s, and now that we are on, clearly on the tail end of whatever this public health crisis was or is, is there a slowdown in, in gross receipts by nonprofits? Not necessarily. In fact, I think there's going to be significant activity. Giving USA came out this week, Chris, and indicated that despite the pandemic and COVID-19 issues, uh, philanthropy's up 5%. And nonprofits, frankly, though, are counting on a continued growth. Um, many of them struggled, as you know, and, and they're going to need this. In fact, I'm uh, hearing that there will be dozens of campaigns throughout the Carolinas, mm -hmm. frankly, trying to recoup the lost investments, particularly in some subsectors, let's say arts and culture, who depended on in-person activity, didn't have it. So the nonprofit community is very hopeful that there won't be a summer 
slowdown in philanthropy because they need the the, the continued rebound of philanthropy. You, you, you know, Pat, let's stay with us. And Laura, I want to ask you this question too, but before, before I do that, Pat, and back to you on this, uh, we have noticed unscientifically in dialogues like this, but also inside dialogues that in some of the markets, in some of our Carolinas, like Charlotte, uh, Charleston, the Low Country, the Upstate, the Triangle, so on and so forth, the the the, the giving, the uh, uh, philanthropic, the five hundred one c threes have come out with record breaking campaigns, but something is different about this. They seem to be doing it in silos on their own, and there doesn't seem to be a concerted effort like there used to be in the past. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, some of it's a natural result of the isolation of the last year and a half. But I think funders are going to demand, frankly, better collaboration. There's not enough money to go around to serve every nonprofit if they don't demonstrate a collaborative spirit. Some of them, by financial distress, are going to be forced to consider, if not partnership, mergers. But I hope that to your question, Chris, we're going to see a more responsive nonprofit community in terms of collaboration, because I think funders, corporate individuals, foundations are going to say, we just can't do it all. Uh, Laura, do you have to have sharper elbows now if you're going to raise money? Do you feel like there's a bigger competitiveness? You know, I, um, look, a, a lot of the things that, that, that Pat is saying resonates with me as a nonprofit leader. And during the, the year of the pandemic, certainly as a leader, I was certainly uh, really anxious about how was our fundraising going to go? And, and, and frankly, how was I just going to manage the work and manage the staff when we were on Zoom calls all the time and couldn't get out in the community? And that's what we do. We're a community-based organization. So how do we do that? Well, the good news is we figured out how to do that. And we also were grateful that our supporters stayed with us. So, you know, we're part of that trend that, that, that Patton was describing. In terms of sharper elbows, I, I don't know about that. I like to think that, you know, um, I, I like to think that our work speaks for itself and people who want to support conservation are doing that because of their, their love of this place and their desire to see it healthy and strong for future generations. And I also have been, you know, we, we our organization is part of, of several of these collaborations that, that Patton talks about. Now we obviously are doing our own fundraising, you know, in, in, in the way that, in the kind of classic way that, that, that nonprofits do that. But I'd say it's a hybrid approach because look, conversation, uh, conservation is the team sport and we know that. And we can do a lot more when we work together and leverage our respective skill sets than we can do apart. So we try to find that synergy when we can. Almost exactly a year ago, we had this guest on and we welcome her back. She is the Secretary of Transportation in the Palmetto State. We welcome the Honorable Christy Hall. Madam Secretary, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for the invitation. Glad to be here. Things are a little bit different than they were about 12 months ago. Wouldn't you agree? Compare and contrast. Roads were vacant. Budgets were questionable. The future of what transportation policy probably seemed way up in the air. Madam Secretary, how would you compare and contrast where we were and where we are now? Yeah, thanks, Chris. That's a great question. I think um, for us here in South Carolina, we made it a priority to keep our road and bridge program moving along nice and strong and, and uh, never stopped any projects, never delayed any projects. We actually took advantage of that lower traffic levels as we were seeing on the roads. 
last year, uh, really used that to our advantage to try to do more work uh, uh, in that time when, you know, when we could do more work with the lower traffic levels uh, on the highways. Um, traffic, we saw it dip as low as uh, close to 50% below normal levels for a short period of time, and, but then it's uh, kind of steadily increased over time. And actually where we sit today, we're uh, at in, in some areas like our high tourism areas along the coast and in the Greenville region, we're actually uh, well ahead of normal traffic levels for those areas. So the Palmetto State is open and uh, we're getting a lot of visitors and we certainly appreciate that from the uh, tourism and uh, just you know showcasing our beautiful state here in South Carolina. Is, is there is there any surprise, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, man, but is there a surprise that, that the volume of traffic has returned as strongly as it has? I think uh, not really. You know, we were anticipating some pent up demand uh, from from the folks not being able to, uh, you know, do things outside. And then once, uh, you know, people started getting comfortable being able to travel and certainly domestic travel is a lot more attractive uh, than international travel right now. So uh, in South Carolina, obviously, is a beautiful destination with a a lot of great places to visit and, and uh, stay and live and work. And so, uh, yeah, I guess we're not really surprised by the, uh, by the, by the increase. Um, we're actually very appreciative of it. I'm going to open this up. Uh, Laura, go ahead, please. Uh, hello, Secretary Hall. It's great to see you again. Um, I, I want to, first of all, I want to thank you for your announcement this spring on the complete streets policy for the South Carolina Department of Transportation. I think you know that we at the Conservation League really love that policy and it's great news for places like Charleston County where I am um, that has the highest rate of uh, fatalities from collisions or accidents with pedestrians and, and bicyclists. Um, and, and we're not alone. Uh, communities all across the Carolinas are having to deal with these kind of problems. So, you know, we're very welcoming of a policy that encourages equitable mobility and that balances the need of, of vehicles and drivers with walkers and, and bicyclists. So, um, so thank you. And my question is, do you have any updates on uh, the implementation or the next steps for the complete streets policy? Yes, thank you for that question, Laura. It's certainly good to see you as well. Um, so yes, we have fully embraced the complete streets policy here at the South Carolina DOT. We have incorporated it into all of our policies and procedures, including dedicating a complete chapter in our new and revised design manual to talk about complete streets. We formed a uh, advisory uh, council, uh, including various stakeholders throughout the state to talk about the implementation and and uh, updates as well as convening training opportunities as well to make sure not just the the designers that work for the state but you know you start to think about all the county governments that do work on the state roads and and others so it's uh we are full speed ahead uh on on that particular endeavor uh and you know chris back to your earlier point about some of the things that we've noticed are different uh since the pandemic one thing is people are walking more and they are biking more uh, using other modes of transportation, um, in, especially in our urban areas in the state. So, you know, it's, it's a national trend. We're glad to be uh, 
uh, finally embracing and recognizing that people move about the state in other modes other than just cars and also recognizing that it can't be a one-size-fit-all approach to it that you've got to be sensitive to the context in which you're you're doing that particular road and bridge project and make sure you're developing the right solution for that community. Pat. Secretary yeah. Hall, Secretary Hall, you've got a multitude of projects going on across the state. Uh, obviously, material costs and perhaps delays in supply chain have to affect all that you have going on. I'm curious, how are you seeing the timeline for your various projects? Yes, so on the front end of the pandemic and actually up until I would say within the last six months, we really didn't have any significant issues on either uh, availability of manpower nor on material issues. However, what we're seeing is, is a little bit of a lag in the supply chain for us over the last uh, three to six months. And it's, it's uh, items like um, lumber, just like home builders have to, you know, are, are challenged finding lumber as well as residential folks. You know, we're seeing 300% price escalation on lumber cost on our projects. Um, the, the two biggest areas of concern right now for us from a material supply standpoint is steel. Um, we use a lot of steel, whether it's in bridges for rebar or big beams or as simple as wire mesh that we put inside of our concrete pipes as we're, as we're casting the concrete pipes. We're having a little bit of shortage on that. And um, so it's, it's introducing some delays in getting that done, uh, getting those materials you know, delivered when we need them uh, and how we need them, in addition to about a 30% cost escalation on the steel. So uh, we're, we're seeing some impacts. Obviously we're concerned about it, not only as a state, but a region and, the National Association that I belong to as well is uh, ringing the bell with, with those that we need to, to to try to get some relief on some of the requirements or possibly causing some of the delays. You know, it's just as a quick follow up to that, a 30% cost increase. I mean, that's a meaningful amount. Does that change budgets? Does that, well, it changes budgets. Does it change timelines and in, in, in project completion dates? It could potentially just depends on that particular vendor for that particular project when they place the order who their supplier is. So obviously we're working on an individual project basis with all of our contractors on this issue, as well as sort of the bigger issue here uh, in, in the nation with uh, some of the, the uh, Buy America provisions that are creating a little bit of the supply chain issue for us on that front. Mm -hmm. Laura. I have a question that is maybe building on this thread or maybe kind of a corollary. Um, you know, I'm I'm well aware that uh, that that DOT has a, a data-driven, you know, quantifiable process for selecting and prioritizing road projects, which is a good thing. It makes sure that the investments are going, you know, to the highest needs. Um, and of course, we're hearing now that Congress is considering earmarks as part of the transportation reauthorization, or, or maybe in the infrastructure bill, or or both. Um, so my question is, do you see any potential for tension um, between your data-driven quantifiable process and the political processes in Washington? Short answer is yes, we do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I have expressed the concern here at the state level about, um, you know, some of the desires at the, at the uh, congressional level to, I guess, direct 
spending in a certain area or a certain way or for a certain project because it really does conflict or has, has the potential to conflict with those uh, statewide priorities that we've identified and laid out and have funded um, at the state level. We spend an awful lot of time developing our strategies and our programs and our priorities with a tremendous amount of public involvement in those, uh, the, those endeavors to make sure that we're doing the right project at the right time for the right need. And anything that has the potential to take money off the top or redirect um, uh, priority or funding away from those priorities is, is certainly a concern. And it's, it's a big concern of mine right now in our ability to deliver what we've laid out and committed to the taxpayers of South Carolina. Uh, Secretary Hall, let's talk about electric vehicles. You've had lots of conversations about that. I know the South Carolina legislature is pondering additional fees on electric vehicles. And I wonder, is that just the reality with the potential future loss of gas tax revenue that you have to ponder those type of moves? Yeah, so I applaud the General Assembly for wanting to look uh, mid-range and long-term for uh, for the state DOT and how we fund our, our road and bridges here in the state. You know, it's certainly not a significant issue for us today, you know, as, as we're building our road projects. You know, electric vehicles are less than 1% of all vehicles here in South Carolina, but I'm sure you all read the headlines just like I do. We had a headline yesterday where uh, one of our major car manufacturers was talking about a significant investment to increase and boost their electric vehicle production here in South Carolina. So based on what we're seeing, you know, we're anticipating that by 2050 that a significant number of vehicles on the roads in South Carolina will be electric, um, as well as a significant amount of new vehicles being sold being electric. So we see this as sort of a... Uh, uh, you know, you really need to start addressing the issue now in order to prepare this agency and our transportation policy, funding policies for that future. Um, it's coming. There's no doubt about it. How quickly it'll get here is always the big question, but we need to start moving today um, on some modest adjustments in order to get us ready for that. And Secretary Hall, let me, let me come back to that just quickly, and I don't want to belabor the point, but of course, in July of this year, there's the planned two cent increase in the gas tax, as, as was laid out earlier. Um, is that, and again, I don't want to be hyperbolic about this, but is the EV deployment into just general society going to happen maybe quicker than we even expect? And will a two, per, two cent raise even come close to closing that gap, even if all of, all of, the, of the gas tax raises are enacted the way they're, they're planned? Yeah, Chris, I think what we're really seeing here at the state level um, today is greater fuel efficiency of the vehicles that are on the road today. We've seen a dramatic up, uptick in that gallon sold versus um, revenues collected is uh, less than what we anticipated it would have been when the gas tax increase was enacted in 2017. Our state economists had predicted about a 2% growth year over year on the gas tax mm -hmm. revenues. And what we're actually seeing is much closer to a 1% growth. So and over time, that, that accumulates to a fairly sizable gap for us, um, lagging behind. That's really been offset for us here in South Carolina from a revenue loss standpoint by the surge in car sales that we had during the pandemic. Um, 
people weren't driving as much, but they were buying a lot of cars. And so uh, that revenue difference was something that we could easily manage during the pandemic. But obviously that's a short-term issue for us that I don't anticipate the car sales to continue to surge year over year over year. Um, so it's, it's the issue of higher fuel efficiency on the vehicles that are on the road because obviously there's a lot more newer vehicles we're seeing it in the, uh, the gallon sold as well as just seeing the number of cars sold in the state coupled with some of those vehicles uh, more of those vehicles, I guess, being sold as electric. So it's, uh, you know, we see that gap continuing to, to widen over the next several years and uh, even beyond that, you know, in 20, as far out as 2050, we've done some projections and we believe that 60% of all vehicles sold um, in 2050 will be electric here in the state, with, uh, which will translate into about 41% estimated of all vehicles on the road in South Carolina being electric. So um, whether that happens sooner than 2050, I really don't know, it's hard to say, but we know that a change is coming and it's really time to start talking about how to deal with that today. Ma'am, we have less than a minute left and I do wanna to get to this. Uh, one, of the, one of the big issues is, is an interchange just south of Columbia, as you know, called Malfunction Junction. It's I-26 and I-77 and it, has been a tough uh, management process, but as DOT now moves forward with the plan to remediate that, one of the other parts of that is trying to manage the traffic when you've got workers on the road. How do you manage that now? Is it different now when, when cars are going faster, when, they're, when tempers are a little bit shorter? And again, we've got about 40 seconds. How do you manage all of that issue? Well, safety is obviously a very high priority for us. So we make sure that, that we're doing work either at night when traffic volumes are lower or behind barriers to the maximum extent possible, along with blue lights in the work zone to slow people down. All right. That's, that's going to have to be the last. I didn't even give you a chance to unpack that, Madam Hall, but thank you so much for being on the program again. Happy summer. Good luck to you, and thanks for your leadership. Laura, good to see you. Pat, good to see you. Until next week, I'm Chris William. We hope you have a good weekend. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.